from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, coming up on this Tuesday edition, former President Donald Trump was in another courtroom on another political front today. You're in a situation where uh, we have the prosecution of the chief political opponent who's winning in every poll and is being prosecuted by the administration that he's seeking to replace. That is the frightening future. That was uh, D. John Sauer, a member of Trump's legal team. That was the audio. He was arguing his case in federal appeals court in Washington today. We're going to get an analysis from today's oral arguments from attorney Gene Scher. A little bit later here in Washington Watch. And Congress arrives back in town tonight, and among the many things happening this week will be the impeachment proceedings for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, Secretary Mayorkas was in Eagle Pass, Texas yesterday, trying to refute the claims made by House Republicans who were in Eagle Pass last week. Some have accused DHS of not enforcing our nation's laws. This could not be further from the truth. Now, there, there's just a, a little problem with that statement. Now, here's what Secretary Mayorkas said in January of 2022. Unlawful presence in the United States will alone not be a basis for an immigration enforcement action. Wait a minute. So, so help me figure this out. They're not enforcing the law, but not enforcing the law is not not enforcing the law. Hmm. Maybe that's why he may be the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in nearly 150 years. We're going to talk with Mississippi Congressman Mike Ezell, a House member of the uh, Homeland Security Committee. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And will the Ohio legislature be the next legislature to override a governor's veto of a measure designed to protect children from the transgender craze? We'll talk with the Ohio author of the state's SAFE Act, which was vetoed by Governor DeWine. That is State Representative Gary Click. He's going to be joining me from the Ohio House a little bit later here on Washington Watch. And the the evidence for the need for these protections is nearly everywhere. A Michigan couple is suing their daughter's former school district for secretly, secretly transitioning their middle school daughter. Our trust was broken when they had this information from us and this was hurting our our daughter without this critical information we were not able to help her Mm -hmm. like we should have been able to help her that was jennifer mead the girl's mother alliance defending freedom has filed a suit for dan and jennifer mead look at the details from kate anderson senior counsel with alliance defending freedom And President Biden continues his campaign of marginalizing conservatives, this time at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The truth is under assault in America. As a consequence, so is our freedom, our democracy, our very country, because without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. Now, as a standalone comment, I agree with that. But... He didn't stop there. Let me say what others cannot. We must reject political violence in America. Always, not sometimes, always. It's never appropriate. Violence of January 6th was an extension of an old playbook from the, from the threats and violence and intimidation. Now, it's very interesting 
when it comes to rioting, violence, and civil unrest that the president and the media seem to have forgotten anything that happened before January the 6th. Kind of went down the memory hole. Well, I haven't. So we're actually going to talk about it here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Be sure and visit TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. Information on our guests, contact information for them, and action items. Our word for today, coming from our Stand on the Word Bible reading plan, is found in Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham's servant returns to Haran to find Isaac, a wife from among Abraham's family. Verse 12, then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Here we have a clear prayer for favor and success, but notice it was also very specific. You know what? We can't be too specific with God. The more clear our petitions, the more evident the answers that will encourage both our faith and bring glory to God. For more on our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org Bible. As I mentioned, the House Homeland Security Committee will hold the first impeachment hearing for Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas tomorrow following a record influx of illegal migrants throughout his tenure, including more than 300,000 last month alone. That, another record. Well, House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green has called Mayorkas, quote, the greatest domestic threat to the national security and the safety of the American people, end quote. So will the embattled secretary become the first cabinet member impeached in nearly 150 years? Well, joining me now to give us an answer is Congressman Mike Ezell. He serves on the House Homeland Security Committee and the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Mississippi. Congressman Ezell, welcome to Washington Watch. Good to see you. Hey, thank you, Tony. I very much appreciate this. I, I cannot tell you how many times that I've listened to you on the radio as I've traveled back and forth across uh, my home district of uh, Mississippi on uh, 91.7 there on the golden Mississippi Gulf Coast. And uh, never thought I'd be on the radio with you, but uh, Happy New Year and God bless you. And thank you for the scripture you quoted. Uh, you know, I uh, am a God-fearing man and Love the Lord, and, and uh, you know, thankfully I've got a, a wonderful wife that feels the same way I do. We love this country. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Well, thank you, sir, and, and thank you for being willing to serve. These are not the easiest times to to serve in public office, but we're grateful for those that are willing to embrace the call. And that is, as, as believers, we know the Lord calls us to these things, and that's yes, what sir. gives us the strength. So let's talk about where things stand with tomorrow's hearing in the Homeland Security Committee. What are your expectations? Well, tomorrow we're going to discuss that every state is a border state. You know, we've been talking about this for the last several months, you know, and there's so many things going on in the country right now. If you just look around the country at at the uh, illegals that are here, uh, the crimes that they have been committing, the victims that we've seen time and time again, the fentanyl abuse that is just tragically taking over our country. Uh, you know, just recently we had a, a family killed in Colorado, which is thousands of miles away from the border. 
by an illegal who was driving under the influence. He had already been deported uh, several times for DUI, and here he is again in the country. So, uh, you know, we've got to get a handle on this, and I'm going to do everything within my power to get this done. The, the secretary continues to say, well, look, we're, 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 our hands are tied. We need more money, and we need Congress to pass laws. But the, we, the laws we, were we working had, before they came in. When Trump, the, when the Trump administration was in place, I was at the border, and it was like a ghost town. So what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what the deal is. You know, my former life as a 42-year police officer and a sheriff and a chief of police and a, a leader of law enforcement officers, I went to the border back last year and saw firsthand what was going on. And I spoke to those Border Patrol agents behind the scenes who didn't want to come out and talk. You know, they're not being allowed to do their job. I don't care what anybody says under oath or anything else. These men and women of the Border Patrol are not being allowed to do their job. They're not being able to enforce the laws that are on the books. Uh, You know, we need to continue with the, you know, the border wall that works. They tell us it works. Uh, they just need to turn those people loose and let them do their job. As a sheriff, I can assure you that I could go down there with the resources they have. I could take care of this problem in a very short period of time. Let's talk about the actions of Secretary Mayorkas and the the fact that tomorrow, as we talked about, yep. that it'll be the first uh, hearing uh, the first proceedings for an impeachment for Secretary Mayorkas. Now, some say, well, d- does his behavior and his actions rise to that level? Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you what, if you just look, like I say, we talked to the men and women of, of Border Patrol. They are not being allowed to do their job as a sheriff and as a chief of police. If I was in charge of a city or a county or a state or a border and I was given an oath to protect uh, protect this country, and I stop my men and women of law enforcement from doing their job. That's the first example right there that he's not doing his job. And so from there, you go everything else behind that, and they will tell you uh, behind the scenes that they are not being allowed to do their jobs. They're being forced to do nursemaiding jobs. They're you know they're they're taking care of of people that don't need to be here to begin with. And I'm telling you, I saw it firsthand down there. Mayorkas is not allowing the men and women of Border Patrol to do their job. I saw that firsthand when I was there. Uh, by the way, uh, Congressman Ezel, I just want to say, number one, thank you for your service as, uh, as a law enforcement officer. And today is Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Yeah, and I is. can't think yeah. of a better way to appreciate the men and women. And, and, and I served nearly 10 years as a police officer and a sheriff's deputy. There's no better way to appreciate them than to allow them to uphold the law and do their job without political interference. And, and that's what the vast majority of men and women in uniform, whether it's state, local or federal, want to do. That's why they joined the ranks of those who uphold the law. It is a calling, just like being called to office, just like being called to run for Congress or any other public service job. You know, I had an old boss one time that said, you know, it's easy uh, to be a supervisor and just not do your job and just let things go along to get along. But in order to stand up and take care and protect these folks, you've got to be allowed to enforce the law that's on the book. And Mayorkas is not letting this happen. He can say all day long, and we, I questioned him when I had my opportunity back last year, 
and I talked to him about it. And I told him as a sheriff of my county in Jackson County, if I did not do my job, I would be removed from office. And I said, sir, you're not doing your job. You need to allow these men and women to do their job so we can protect this country. They're not doing that. And uh, it's very obvious. I mean, you know, the old uh, fable, you know, emperor's new clothes, that's, that's the story we're getting here. You can say all day long that the border is, is secure and the laws are being enforced, but just look at what's going on around the country. Right. It's wide open. You're absolutely right. Congressman Ezell, I want to thank you for joining us here on Washington Watch and uh, appreciate your service and look forward to uh, watching tomorrow's hearing. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right, sir. And let me just say this. Uh, the failure of this administration to enforce the law at the border, frustrating for Border Patrol agents. But you know what? It has deadly consequences for American citizens and for law enforcement because they're the ones that are, I mean, in fact, the hearing tomorrow is how this is impacting middle America. All across this country is being impacted by open borders. As we talked about last week, every state is a border state. And law enforcement, men and women who protect our communities are putting it, being put at greater risk because we're refusing to enforce the law at the border. And again, I just want to say thank you to the men and women who wear the uniform, uh, whatever it is, state, local, law enforcement, our federal law enforcement, the vast majority of them are there for the right reasons. We certainly appreciate those at the state and local level, and I've got uh, some of my children adult children in that profession as well. All right, don't go away. More Washington Watch on the other side of this break. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. 
Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Attorneys for former President Donald Trump made oral arguments before a federal appeals court in Washington this morning with two key arguments. The 2024 Republican presidential frontrunner has presidential immunity from special counsel Jack Smith's charges and that President Biden is, quote, prosecuting his number one political opponent and his greatest electoral threat, end quote. Now, the panel of the three judges, two of whom were appointed by President Biden, appeared skeptical of the immunity argument as they questioned attorneys for President, uh, former President Trump more aggressively than the representatives from, for the uh, special counsel. But there may be another issue here. Is Jack Smith, the special counsel, legally operating? Does he actually have the authority to do what he's doing? Join me now to discuss this is Gene Sher. He's a former White House associate counsel to the president and served as a law clerk for two U.S. Supreme Court justices. He is now a partner uh, in a law firm here in Washington, D.C. Gene, welcome to Washington Watch. Good to see you. Good to see you, Tony, and thanks for the invitation. Well, let me first get your reaction, your general reaction to today's hearing. Uh, well, I agree with you that certainly two of the three judges were quite skeptical of, uh, uh, of the arguments made by President Trump's lawyer. And uh, if I had to predict, I think that they are likely to send the case back uh, to the district court for a trial. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, President Trump's lawyers will have the option of, uh, of seeking review of that decision, either from the full D.C. Circuit, a, a proceeding that we call an en banc review, uh, or they can go immediately to the Supreme Court and seek review of that decision there. But I, it, it seems quite likely that, uh, that Trump is likely to lose at this phase. Is is that because of the 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 court makeup? Well, it's it's not even clear that he will get the vote of the third judge, who was a uh, who was a Republican appointee. Um, she she didn't seem as sympathetic to his arguments as I as I would have expected. But um, of course, we don't know for sure until the court actually decides. Um, but I think it was uh, I so so it may not just. It may not be just the result of the of the court's makeup. It was uh, the argument that was made against Trump here is that is a technical argument that this is not the kind of a case that is appropriate for immediate review. The the general rule in our legal system is that you have to wait until there is what what is called a 
final judgment before you can appeal a ruling. And, uh, and the argument is that as of right now, there's no final judgment because Trump hasn't gone through trial and there hasn't been a final decision as to whether he is guilty or innocent of the, of the charges that have been made against him. And so the argument on the other side is you shouldn't, uh, the, the argument that was made by one of the amici was that you sh you shouldn't take this case at all because there's been no final judgment. So, in other words, you're getting the the legal cart before the horse. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about something else that uh, you filed a a brief, uh, a friend of the court brief, that right. may actually be a bigger issue here, and that is regards the re regarding the special counsel and whether or not his appointment was constitutional. Talk about that. Yeah, our, the argument that we made in an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief filed on behalf of, uh, of former Attorney General Ed Meese and various others, uh, is that Jack Smith simply doesn't have authority to prosecute President Trump or anybody else uh, because he was not properly appointed pursuant to any statute. Uh, the general rule under the Constitution, under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, is that only Congress can create officers of the United States, and they have to do that according to according to statutes. Um, and uh, there is no statute that authorizes the appointment of Jack Smith to exercise the kind of power that he's exercising, the power to prosecute uh, a former president with any degree of independence uh, from the Justice Department or anybody else. Now, there is a way that Attorney General Garland could have properly appointed a special counsel. He could, he could simply have appointed one of the sitting U.S. attorneys who have already been um, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, that would be a proper way of, uh, of proceeding in this prosecution. But instead, for some reason, Attorney General Garland picked Jack Smith, who had not gone through that process. In fact, he was, you know, he was a he was simply a private citizen at the at the uh, point at which he was appointed to that position. And there's just no statute that authorizes the attorney general uh, or any anyone else to appoint a prosecutor uh, in those circumstances with the kind of independence that uh, that Jack Smith enjoys. So, Gene, has that ever happened before? Uh, yes, it has happened. It happened in the case of Robert Mueller, <laughs> and uh, uh, and and many uh, legal scholars whom I admire, including including two of the signatories to our amicus brief, uh, Gary Lawson and um, Steve Calabresi, who are good friends of mine and very well regarded law professors. Uh, they argued at the time that Mueller's uh, that Mueller's appointment was unconstitutional because there was no statute that justified his appointment, and so the same argument would have applied there. So th these the, these may sound technical, but they're quite significant because, in a in, for instance, if if I want to challenge something that they that the federal government might be doing, I have to determine that I have standing legal standing. So it's applied to me. So the person who would be prosecuting needs to have the legal foundation to be doing that. Absolutely, and uh, you know these rules that were set up by our framers may may seem technical and may seem procedural. Uh, but all of them were based on important principles of good governance. And in this case, uh, the, the principle at issue is the proper separation of powers 
uh, between Congress and the executive, that the appointments clause that I mentioned earlier in, in Article 2, Section 2 was put there by the framers to ensure that Congress, composed of the people's elected representatives, have adequate authority and oversight over the over the positions, over the the officer positions that are available in the executive branch to be to be filled, so that you don't have somebody, uh, so that the president doesn't have the ability, right. for example, to operate like it, a king. It, it, it's the, the the rule of law. Our system works on yeah. that. Very, very quickly, Gene, we're yeah. up against a break, but do you expect the court to entertain that argument? I don't expect that they will entertain it here because uh, President Trump's lawyers have not expressly adopted it. They've indicated they may adopt that later on, but they have not yet adopted it. All right. Uh, Gene Chair, I want to thank you for joining us. Very insightful. Uh, appreciate uh, the analysis. Good. Pleasure to be with you, Tony. All right. Thanks so much. Well, coming up, will the Ohio House of Representatives override Governor Mike DeWine's, DeWine's veto of uh, House Bill 68? That's next. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. The website is TonyPerkins.com. All right, we've been talking about this a lot uh, in the last uh, week in particular since uh, Governor Mike DeWine vetoed House Bill 68 in Ohio. Kind of uh, a, a big disappointment, quite frankly. But the Ohio House of Representatives has scheduled a vote tomorrow to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of House Bill 68, which includes a SAFE Act to protect children from experimental gender procedures, as well as to rules to protect female athletes and to keep uh, this information from being hidden from parents. Now, if the in the schools, if the House 
vote to override is successful, as is ex expected. The Ohio Senate will likely schedule its override vote for January the 24th. Joining me now to uh, discuss this is the, uh, the sponsor of House Bill 68, State Representative Gary Click. He represents the 88th District of Ohio. He's also a pastor. Pastor Gary, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good evening, Tony. Thank you for having me. So give us your sense of uh, going into uh, tomorrow's uh, override vote. Uh, our momentum is very good. You know, you never want to count your chickens till they hatch. But uh, every sign that we see is a good sign. Uh, people were, uh, our, my colleagues were clamoring to come back and vote on this. They're, they're very upset. They're very perturbed by the governor's veto. And uh, quite honestly, the sense that the governor wants to take over and rewrite this bill and have us pass his version after he spent 10 days studying this, and now he's the expert. Uh, but we've invited him to join us for two and a half years to participate in this. And it wasn't until an hour before we actually voted on it that he wanted some concessions, and that just doesn't work for us. That that has a lot of uh, my colleagues upset in the manner that he's done that, and there's a lot of momentum. Uh, people flying back from Florida and other places just to be here to uh, vote to override the governor. So, Representative, uh, let me ask you this. Um, last Friday, uh, Governor DeWine signed an emergency order banning surgeries for minors. Now, this was after he vetoed the bill, but from mm -hmm. my perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're right there, mm -hmm. my perspective from a political standpoint was that he's just trying to let some of the pressure off and say, oh, I've taken care of this. That, that's right. He's trying to let some of the pressure off. And was I found, found very interesting is that while he did that, he said everyone agrees on that, which is true to an extent, uh, but he said they're not really happening, but this just takes it off the table. And I don't know why he would say they're not really happening, because we've provided irrefutable evidence that it is happening on minors right here in Ohio. We have all kinds of proof of that, and so why he said that, I don't know. But if he really wants to do good, what he needs to do, Tony, is he also needs to do an executive order to ban the puberty blockers uh, until the—because I'm glad he did that executive order— because there's a 90-day window before any legislation takes effect. And so there was going to be a rush on those surgeries mm. for these kids. And now because he, we, we gave him a uh, grandfather clause at his request, he asked for it. I gave it to him reluctantly, but I did. And now there's going to be a rush on the puberty blockers, those, those chemically castrating drugs for minors, uh, to get in under that grandfather clause if we're not careful. So, you know, tomorrow I'm going to challenge him to uh, sign an executive order to ban those to at least keep people from getting on those in that immediate right. time for the grandfather clause. So, so uh, Pastor Gary, much has been made of the governor's statement following his veto about saving lives. Now, you've been working on this for, for years, I mean, almost since the start when these things began, and we've been working on them here at the Family Research mm -hmm. Council. Why is that a flawed argument? It's a flawed argument. It's an emotional argument, but it's not an evidence-based argument. If you actually look, before 2014, when we started this in Ohio, there was no epidemic of suicides because people had gender dysphoria. And when you actually look, suicide around the nation has actually increased from the time they started this in Boston in 2007, the youth suicide rate has steadily increased and gone up. And so you would think that if gender dysphoria and transition and gender dysphoria causes suicide, you'd think that once we started banning these treatments around the nation, that the suicides would actually go up. But guess what? Ever since Robin Lundstrom started in Arkansas, and we've had over 20 states since then, 
the actual youth suicide rates have gone down, not up. But it's an appeal to emotion. How do you argue that when someone is with tears in their eyes telling you this? The reality is the suicidal ideations are they they precede the gender dysphoria. They don't follow right. it. Right. Well, the gender dysphoria is the result, not the cause. Yeah, and this is one of those things that um, you know they just review, refuse to see the facts. If you look at the facts, the statistics, and 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 what's interesting, and I'm sure you've seen this, Pastor Gary, that increasingly they're intimidating the researchers not to actually do the research because they don't yes. want the facts out there because it refutes what they're trying to do. Absolutely right. And, and that's one thing I have to compliment the governor on. I, you know, we've got some things where we're button heads right now, but he did say he wants to get the numbers and the evidence and the, the all the, the data from the hospitals. I had that in an earlier version of the SAFE Act, and we had to negotiate that out because there was so much opposition to it. So I support that. They don't want to give us the data because the data will tell the tale, and they don't want us to know the facts. Yeah. Pastor Gary, final question. How can our viewers and listeners help you there in Ohio that uh, reside in the Buckeye State? Keep calling. Keep sending emails. I've gotten more organic outreach in my office on this bill, on this override, than I have anything since I've ever been here. And my colleagues are having the same. So we just need to keep the pressure up till we get it done. Calls. Phone calls, emails, whatever it takes. Get a hold of your legislator and tell them you want us them to override the veto. Thank you. Tony. All right, Pastor Gary, we will do just that. And once again, thanks for your leadership. And we'll be praying and watching tomorrow. God bless you, Tony. Thank you for praying. All right, uh, and folks, I do encourage you to to pray. Pray that the truth will prevail and these children will be protected. If you live in Ohio, go to TonyPerkins.com. Contact information there for you. After the break, is it just me or does the president and those on the left think that political and civil unrest didn't exist prior to January the 6th, 2021? We're going to talk about that next. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. 
It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. All right, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be doing a, uh, a weekly worldview question. And uh, throughout 2024, I'm going to be inviting you to participate in polls and surveys to determine, you know, as we talk about SageCon, are you a SageCon? And uh, we've got a lot of resources to help SageCons. That's spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives. Those are people who are involved in this process because of their faith. Right? That's why we're here. So here's this week's question. This week's poll question is this. On the topic of immigration, and a lot of people don't realize the Bible speaks to all of these issues. On the topic of immigration, what does the Bible say is the overriding concern of the civil government? Number one, prioritize protecting citizens. Two, empathizing with the plight of migrants. Three, a combination of both. You want to take that? All right. Text poll to 67742. That's the word poll, P-O-L-L, to 67742. You'll get a link and you can participate. And you'll be able to see there how uh, others, other listeners, viewers of Washington Watch are responding. And then later in the week, we'll share the results. So go ahead and take the poll question. Text poll to 67742. All right. It is quite clear that President Biden is going to make January 6th the theme of his reelection campaign. Play clip eight. Let me say what others can now. We must reject political violence in America. Always, not sometimes, always. It's never appropriate. Violence of January 6th was an extension of an old playbook from the, from the threats and violence and intimidation. You know what? I have said that. Uh, in fact, I've spoken out. I think January 6th was foolish for those who violated the law in it, but it was a riot. It was an insurrection. You don't have you don't have insurrections with signs and uh, placards and flags. But I was also talking about unrest and civil disobedience prior to that. It's like it went down the memory hole for the left. Now, is it accidental that the Washington Post ran with this big headline today? Violent political threats surge as 2024 begins haunting American democracy. Coincidence? 
Well, let me just read the, the first couple of paragraphs. Rusty Bowers, a former speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives who played a pivotal role in resisting efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, drove into his neighborhood east of Phoenix the day after Christmas to a spine-chilling scene. His home, nestled off a dirt road in an unincorporated slice of the desert, was surrounded by sheriff's deputies. An unknown caller had reported that there was a pipe bomb inside and that a woman had been murdered. After searching the house and questioning Bowers' wife and grandson, according to Bowers and authorities, sheriff's deputies determined that neither claim was true. Now, this is, it goes on to say this incident, the incident of swatting, this is a prank call to emergency services designed to draw law enforcement, a law enforcement response, wasn't just a terrifying moment for the Bowers for Bowers and his family, it was one of the many violent threats and acts of intimidation that have defined the law, the lives of various government officials since the 2020 election. So th- this just all started in 2020. The, 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 this violence and this um, in, intolerance? I don't think so. I mean, yes, it was 2012 when Inspired by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a leftist organization that the Biden administration actually relies upon to track domestic terrorists, listed the Family Research Council and inspired a gunman to come in and shoot one of our employees with the desire to actually kill all of us with 100 rounds of ammunition. Now, I want to continue on here. Now, a professor at government at Harvard University, Stephen Levitsky, who studies democracies around the world, said politicians and election workers who are threatened have their lives affected, often needing to adopt a adopt new security measures or other safeguards. Yeah, tell me about it. And this happened long before 2020. I mean, we I could go through the litany of threats made by the left and the results of that. Now, Levinsky noted that while violent threats span the political spectrum, the vast majority come from activists and others on the far right. And this is the article of the Washington Post. Let me continue. For instance, Representative Elise Stefanik said on NBC's Meet the Press over the weekend that she condemned violence, but she also echoed Trump's characterization of those incarcerated for their role in the violent January 6th insurrection as hostages. Oh, so if you question the left's narrative, you're promoting violence? I mean, what again, the left, everything prior to January 2021 and in 2020 apparently went down the memory hole for the left because you remember the 2016 election deniers, which actually included President Biden and Hillary Clinton? Well, let me continue because this is not isolated. The Washington Times, now generally a favorable publication, yesterday had an article on the same thing. President Biden, or President Biden has blamed former Donald, President Donald Trump and his followers for the growing wave of political violence in the U.S., but analysts say the surge in threats and attacks is a bipartisan phenomenon. Now, this goes into, uh, well, let me just read first couple of paragraphs. In a series of speeches to kick off the campaign year, Mr. Biden said Mr. Trump and his supporters embrace political violence and laugh about it. 
Those who study the issue say both sides of America's increasingly hostile politics have plenty of culpability. It's not all about Trump. There are forces on the left that are just as intemperate as Trump, said Benjamin Ginsburg, who researches political violence at Johns Hopkins University. Trump bears some of the blame, but there are plenty of Democrat politicians and operatives who are intemperate and pro- prone to violence. Well, it's a little bit better, a little more balanced in the reporting. Maxine Waters, he pointed to Maxine Waters, told Democrats to get in the face of Republicans. It is a prelude to shooting at them, Ginsburg said. But I, I want to continue here before I run out of time. Last year, now this was Ginsburg, last year, at least, uh, I'm sorry, this is the uh, the Washington Times reporter. Last year, at least 250 people were criminally charged in connection with political violence, according to the Justice Department data. Roughly 40 people were killed in incidents linked to politics, according to a separate study by Reuters. Now, I think this is actually an example of lazy journalism. So I went to look at Reuters. And Reuters, this Reuters article was from August of uh, 2023. And I I want to read from it. The November 5th killing of Anthony King was among 213 cases of political violence identified by Reuters since the January 6, 2021 attack. Wait a minute. Why why is that the, the date where we just start tracking all of this? So everything is tracked from... January 6th, nothing before that apparently counts, except I'm going to drop down to the like fifth paragraph in this Reuters article. Incidents of political violence began rising in 2016 around the time of Trump's first run for the presidency, said Gary LaFree, a University of Maryland criminologist. Well, so they don't want to count the actual incidents. They just want to say, well, it was since Trump's been around. Now, let me just put a little context here, okay? Let me let me talk about what happened in the summer of 2020. 140 cities were torched in the most expensive case of civil disobedience and rioting and looting that has ever taken place in the country. Two billion dollars. There were lives lost. It's been it's hard to track down, but about two dozen people died as a result of the riots that ensued after George Floyd. More than 2,000 police officers were injured. And, uh, of course, you recall Portland, Oregon, that went on for weeks, the demonstration there and the millions of dollars that were spent there protecting federal facilities. But, But that's all gone in the memory hole. We don't count any of that. It's only since January 6th have we seen these incidents of political unrest and hostility. Now, that that doesn't even give me, I don't even have time to get into the attacks on churches that have taken place during the Biden administration. In fact, we, we are just calculating what took place in this last year, the hostility toward churches. We've seen a doubling of the attacks on churches in this last year, 412 that we've documented thus far in 2023. Now, I want to go back, to, and, and I'm going to wrap this up, because I want, I've got another guest to bring on. But Ginsburg, in his interview with the Washington Times, says this, although analysts agree political violence is rising, no broad solution is apparent. Ginsburg said increased law enforcement is one solution, but he also called on Americans to avoid getting their news from only sites with political slants. Well, good luck. 
He said lawmakers must be more willing to compromise and find bipartisan solutions. Let me let me give you a solution. And it actually goes back to the first president of the United States, George Washington, in his farewell address. He says, all of all of the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And then he goes on in that farewell address to say this, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of a a particular structure, reason, and experience, both forbid us to expect that national morality can be maintained in exclusion of religious principle. So the very thing that we need is being driven out. That is a recognition of God and religion, allowing people to live out their faith in such a way that it affects the world around them. That, my friends, that is the answer. All right. If we need more evidence for why we need laws like the SAFE Act in Ohio that we just discussed earlier with uh, Pastor Gary, Two parents in Michigan have sued their local school district, alleging school officials were calling their middle uh, school-aged daughter by a masculine name and pronouns and concealing it, concealing it from the parents. So the parents, Dan and Jennifer Mead, only learned of this through a report mistakenly sent home. But fortunately, they're not standing alone. They have help. Joining me now to discuss this is their attorney, Kate Anderson, senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom and director of the Center for Parental Rights there at ADF. Kate, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me on the show. So a very brief overview of the Mead story. Fill in anything that I may have missed. Yeah, so we represent Dan and Jennifer Mead, and exactly as you said, they were working very closely with their school because they had noticed some struggles with their daughter, struggles academically, struggles with her peers, um, and they were working on an IEP plan with the school when they came to find out that all this time they were working with those officials, those officials were hiding from them the fact that the school district had socially transitioned their daughter without their knowledge or consent, Um, and actually with changing records. Let me ask. Let me, let me make sure I understand that they were in. It wasn't like the parents were didn't care, weren't in communication. They were actually working on the behavioral issues of their daughter in constant conversation. This was hidden from them. Absolutely. In very close contact with the very people who were hiding this information, a counselor, in fact, that was uh, changing the names in the records before sending them home so that the male name that was being used at school was then changed back to their daughter's female name uh, when sent to the parents. And they only found out because this counselor missed a record. And so the male name came home. They began asking questions uh, and found out what happened. This would appear to be legally a slam dunk. Do not parents ultimately have the right to determine their the the, the well being of their children and whether or not they're called by a, a a pronoun or a name that's inconsistent with their biological sex? Yes, parents have the constitutional and fundamental right to direct the upbringing and education of their kids, and it's important in this context because. 
this is something this child was dealing with that was very difficult. She needed her parents with her. Indeed, she's doing much better now that she has her parents walking alongside that. That's why parents have the responsibility to raise their kids, a responsibility given to us by God. Um, and when the school district hides information and lies to parents about important information about their kids, they keep those parents from fulfilling their obligations, and it violates the parents' rights and hurts the kids. Kate, I would like to say that this is oh, just an isolated incident that just just this is just happened. But unfortunately, it's not, is it? It's not. We're seeing these kinds of policies all around the country. And when Dan and Jennifer Mead confronted their school district about it, their school district told them, this is the way it is. This is a policy that we have. This is something we have to do. You just have to understand um, all this time that we've been lying to you. Uh, and it's something that's happening to too many families. It shouldn't happen to any, but it's happening to families around the country um, with school districts that have adopted these dangerous policies. Up against uh, the end of the program, but what can parents do if they discover this and they find that the school district is um, is hostile toward their concerns? Parents need to know that they have the rights to protect their kids in this circumstance. They need to make these decisions. They need to know what's right for their kids, um, and the law stands behind them. So be brave. All right. And they've got great friends like Alliance Defending Freedom. Kate, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and uh, updating us on this important case out of Michigan. Thank you. All right. And and you can find out contact information for Alliance Defending Freedom. They do great work uh, on representing the rights of parents and religious freedom and, and all of our first freedoms. And uh, by the way, another example of why we need the SAFE Act in Ohio, because that's a part of that bill, is uh, keeping government schools from hiding this from parents. So if you're in Ohio, take action. All right, folks, out of time. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything that you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 